to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Mariah Howard, who has been a project manager, business analyst, agile coach, and a product manager for over 25 years. Mariah is currently a senior product manager at Thinkful. Mariah, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me. For those who may not have experience working directly with a product manager on a software application, what are you as a product manager primarily responsible for? Well, at its core, a product manager's primary role is to be a problem solver. So part of my role is to be an ethnographer of the market. I collect data through a variety of techniques in order to provide a solid representation of the market, primarily taking a human-centered approach, which means focusing on the voice of customer, win-loss interviews, user surveys, and user and prospect observations. I spend time learning insights from internal colleagues to understand their lens and the perspectives they have. And I layer in secondary market research and business analytics as well. By listening and observing the needs of the market, I look for trends, themes, patterns to become consistent and corroborated. And I interpret all those inputs to understand the problem to be solved, really kind of obsessing over the problem. And then together with the team, we converge on the best possible solution to experiment with and iterate on. When we've designed a validated solution, meaning that there is product market fit and the market size is what we'd need to achieve the ROI in that particular solution that we're looking to explore, we'll ship it and then start nurturing it. So I'm pretty much responsible for that complete life cycle. And I know that kind of sounds like a a linear process, but it is absolutely not linear. It's really got more of a bias towards action, prototyping, experimenting, and then learning. So when you talked about having different ways of measuring like how successful the new features and functionality they're releasing for that product, what sorts of measurements are you using or are there any metrics they're using to kind of measure how successful your team is when it comes to it, whether or not they should be implementing these new features and or removing them? Absolutely. So I tend to use Google's heart framework, a metrics framework. The heart stands for happiness, engagement, adoption, retention, and task success. And there can be a lot of different signals and metrics based on what product or market you're in for each of those. So for example, in the area that I've been in, which is education technology for the past nine years or so, some of the things that I would look at for task success would be in the student curriculum, is the student actually able to complete a certain interactive component to prove that they've acquired the knowledge? For engagement, I look at gamification elements to see, are they using those particular components? For adoption, obviously, you know, coming back, return visitors. For retention, it's number of active users, the renewal rate that we're seeing with our customers. And happiness, we can use NPS for that. We can use a lot of different metric measurements for that too. So you can have satisfaction surveys that's built in and integrated into the content or even into the platform itself. What is NPS, just for those that might be not be familiar? Net promoter score. Those are like the types of little surveys you get where you rate like a one to 10 and how likely you would be to say recommend this to like a peer or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. I also use Dave McClure's pirate metrics. Those are primarily I use those in the growth stage of a product. So it's after you've achieved product market fit. This is really when you want to start growing a product and you're going to be looking at awareness. It's the funnel of your product all the way through the referral stage. So it's awareness, acquisition, activation revenue, retention, and then referral. So, you know, we particularly want to make sure that our students are referring us to, so we can have more students. 
Right. When the product's being designed, is there a lot of conversation amongst your tech team about how are you going to measure that? Or is that something that typically you build out the like initial version and then you start figuring that out? Like how, when, when does that usually fit into those conversations or where do you feel like they should be fitting in the conversation? I feel like they should be fitting earlier on in the conversations. It tends to be an afterthought is what I find. Not, not in all cases, but you know, building out the tooling to actually do those measurements, that is something that we often skip on because it's, it takes extra time. So we might, we might skip on that. And then we find out later, we don't actually have the tooling to be able to evaluate whether that is a, if we're being successful on that metric or not. Whose responsibility do you think that is to bring those things up earlier? Ultimately, I think it's the product manager. I think it's me to bring that and say, this is a requirement for the product is to be able to have those tools. Though I would say, ultimately to the conversation we're having today, that would be building out tooling while it'd be great if i don't have product market fit it's a waste of that expense so you know the faster that we can get to accelerate feedback the better off we'll be to be able to have the resources to implement that at a later time right as a product manager when do you balance investing further into an existing feature versus moving on to say a new feature or set of next features because i have this real focus on experimentation you know, one of the things that I do is I'm always looking at the thing that we previously did to see, is it actually being successful? If it's showing that there's success in it, then I tend to leave some room with the capacity of the team to make sure that we're nurturing the thing that we've recently built. That's not always something that the business likes to hear, but because I know it's important for us to not leave something unnurtured. If it's something in its infancy, you certainly have to nurture it. Otherwise, it's just going to, it, it won't get the love that you need to give it um, to actually show the success that you want it to see. I tend to use leading indicators for that instead of lagging indicators. What's the difference there for those that may not be familiar with that? Did they actually get the right answer on the question that you asked them? That would be a, a lagging indicator. You're waiting to see, did they get the right answer? A leading indicator would be something more like, how many attempts have they taken in aggregate? And that would be an indicator of, if all students are taking three or more attempts or 30 more minutes than expected, then there's there's probably a challenge in the thing that you've got. But if you're waiting to see, did they graduate or did they complete the curriculum? Did they, how did they do on the assessment? That's too late to actually make an impact to the student, the student experience or the student learning. So I tend to look at these leading and lagging indicators to help inform whether we should be pursuing moving towards a new feature or nurturing an existing feature. Okay. So I want to pivot a little bit. How would you describe how closely you would work with software developers on a regular basis? Are you meeting with them on a pretty regular basis or is it like kind of a periodically checking in? Like what does this look like in a typical Scrum environment? So I would say from the, the last company that I was working in, which was a little less than three months ago, it was on the daily basis. I was a member of the team. We were on the same team for many years together. It was an enormous amount of trust. I didn't treat myself as the manager of the team. I was the manager of the product, but we as a team solves the problems that, we, that we've identified. All right. And so you know, I'm assuming you're familiar with the concept of technical debt. Yeah, absolutely. How has technical debt in your product's code bases impacted those metrics over the years? It certainly has impacted it. I've worked on many mature products, so I've seen a lot of technical debt. And, you know, it's funny. I think while there are lots of books out there to help product managers create a new product, most teams don't have the luxury of building a new product from scratch. Or if they do and it's done right, 
that which means that there truly is a product market fit. The product will establish a customer base and likely competition, and eventually it's going to incur debt. And products aren't in this think it, build it stage forever. They tend to be in the nurture it stage for the length, the, the biggest length of, of that life cycle. Product manager together with the team, they constantly have to make these trade-offs to continuously improve the product. And that really is an end state until the product is shut down or reimagined. And reimagining may be a big rewrite. It's really looking at have we reached a point of diminishing returns. Hmm. How would an organization or a team kind of come to that kind of conclusion? Well, you know, some examples I've seen here. So in the past, I worked on a legacy learning management platform and feature bloat became huge. It was just one large monolithic code base. Um, so changes were really tough to implement because of the ripple effect they had. Um, and so we were just punt on doing work, even fixing bugs. You know, clearly that had an impact on all the metrics if we're not addressing bugs because it was just too difficult. So eventually we moved to containerization for that and we, we would build components and we moved to microservices to actually optimize the areas of the code that had the highest usage. Interesting. And so did that help your team start being able to ship updates and new features or at least improvements quicker? Oh, absolutely. It became a space for us to, first of all, focus on the features that were the most important. So, you know, starting to refactor those areas. And instead of just rebuilding the entire legacy platform, we, we would rebuild in the areas that had highest customer benefit. Hmm. Did your team have the luxury of past technical decisions that afforded them some good QA and or testing processes in place? Or was that primarily manually tested or were there some automated tests from like a code perspective? We have a pretty test-driven development environment. And the person on my team who does QA is phenomenal. She has built in automated testing for all the things that we... It's, it's kind of baked into the nature of how we build. So yes, automated testing, QA is always at the forefront. We're comfortable releasing. You know, it's not like QA forever, but QA is built into our sprints. It's not like we do hardening or, or any kind of QA after the sprint. It happens in the current sprint. So given that you've been in the industry for quite a while, I'm, I'm assuming that's not the only example of working with a technical team where they needed to kind of overcome some past technical legacy code issues and stuff like that. Do you have some other good stories to share of how you've worked with the team to overcome those challenges? So another great example is that when a good deal of my legacy product was built, it was built in Flash. Flash was the best technology to build interactivity. So even before the security issues, ultimately when the browsers stopped supporting Flash, we had customers telling us that while they loved the solution, the, there were policies being put in place where they were no longer able to purchase our curriculum because it required the Flash plugin. We knew this was coming. We knew it would be a problem. And while we did pivot to building new curriculum in HTML5, we still had about 75% of our curriculum was in Flash. So we had a product in a language that none of our developers could support or even wanted to learn how to support it. So that was a big challenge. And eventually we were forced into to rewriting the, the, the content because the product couldn't exist if we hadn't done it. So in hindsight, this was really expensive and not the right approach to dr addressing the technical debt. We should have really started early. While we did rewrite the highest used content first, had we been able to constantly focus on paying down the debt here, we wouldn't have needed to do the big rewrite and we would have likely had a better solution because every lesson would have been incrementally built and not just in this big mass effort of conversion, which it ended up being just a straight up conversion just because we had to get it done.
in order to impact the, the next school year. So while I pushed and pushed the business to address it, it took security issues, performance issues, and eventually browsers just stopping to support it before the business was willing to make an investment in the core product. And I, I think that was a fault on my side, not on the team side. The team was pushing for it. I was pushing for it. But as a product manager, I should have made it very explicit that this is not something we can. Yeah, it's interesting. I think with some of the other stories about technical debt, that one's fascinating because there came a point when it's not like supported anymore in a way that's like you have to go through a bunch of hoops to even get Flash to run anymore on a site. And with new devices like iPads, you know, I'm sure that was an issue when that first came out because, you know, can't load anything. I remember that being an issue with the Flash world. So, yeah, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of the conversations with people about how technical debt's impacting the business is usually like we're, it's slowing down our development process. We're having, you know, things like related to that. Not, not so much this sort of scenario where it just doesn't work anymore. People can't use it and people will not buy it because it reminds me of previous eras where we had things like ActiveX or needing to install Java into your browser, things like that, where those were things that we've come to learn over the years that when you work with these kind of proprietary systems, that sometimes they, they go away and the industry may not keep up quick enough. And that's, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, that reminds me about another thing that I think is really interesting is that tech debt is often understood as code, but there's also content debt. So today in my current product, I run the engineering curriculum products for a company called Thinkful. You know, we've got content debt in our jQuery curriculum to some extent. So this is really interesting because with jQuery, it's not as relevant as it once was, but we're in a really interesting position because what we need to do is train developers to use the most appropriate technologies for their future career as a full stack developer. And many of our developers are going to be going to companies that have legacy, legacy systems that still need to be supported. What I remember from the most recent Stack Overflow developer survey, jQuery is, is the most broadly used web framework and still in use on 77% of websites, I, I, I recall. So you know what I find interesting about that is what do I do as a product manager with the curriculum? Do I teach older technologies because it helps students or it helps future students get their career and work in the systems that they're going to be working on? Or do I build my product to have the most current technologies, which will prepare them for future development, but may not prepare them for developing on the legacy systems that they'll get jobs in? In my own experience, you know, we bring on interns periodically throughout the year. We probably do 10 to 12 different interns every year that come out of coding schools and they're learning fairly new, somewhat up-to-date technology. That's not always the case. I remember it's always been kind of a joke that the art institute, there's usually like learning how to do web design, web development type skills that they learn there. I'm reflecting back on the previous point about Flash as an example, I remember several years after we knew that Flash was going to stop being a thing that using, people were learning Flash still at the art institutes here in town, you know, in Portland. And, and they're, you know, so students are coming to us learning, having just learned Flash, and we're like, you know, you're not going to get to use it anywhere. And it's like that content's outdated in one way. On the flip side, we have interns coming in and they're working on the latest technology. And then it's like, your first job probably isn't going to be building up a brand new application. You're going to join a team that has had a number of years of code accumulate and you are not equipped necessarily from, from day one to know how to dive into that and be like, I got to go learn all these old things. We ourselves, developers that went through coding boot camps and immediately we are working on a big upgrade project right now, for example, and we have a developer that's having to go back and look at documentation that's 10 to 12 years old to understand what the life cycle of that 
code base was back then and finding that there's a lack of documentation that still exists on the internet about that because that company, our client, hasn't kept those things updated. So maybe this is a good time to pivot over to learning more about what you know your organization does. Just thinking about how do you equip software developers as they're entering the job market to solve problems regardless of you know the technology platforms that they're going to be exposed to because every company is going to have their own combination of decisions that have been made and, and or lack of decisions maybe on keeping things updated. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point is that what we do in the online code school that we run, we, while we do teach the, the full stack languages, that's not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to teach students how to become problem solvers, to collaborate with each other, use tools that exist out there like Stack Overflow, like Google, like Git and GitHub so that they can go and solve problems with other people. I think that's an interesting, interesting point that we absolutely need to be looking at developing students with the skills that they can go regardless of what the stack is. So let's take a quick step back. And you, know, you mentioned that you recently transitioned into a new role. So what does Thinkful offer their world? And what is your role there? So Thinkful is a new type of school um, that brings high growth technical careers to ambitious people anywhere in the United States. Um, we provide one-on-one learning through a network of industry experts and mentors and hiring partners. Um, and we delivered a structured and flexible curriculum uh, in a variety of engagement formats. So we offer um, immersive courses, uh, nights and weekends courses where you're working with a cohort or a fully flexible course. Um, so we offer programs in web development, data science, design, and we have in-person communities in 22 hub cities around the US. So I'm the senior product manager of all of the engineering programs. And what that means is to continue to see rapid growth, I need to maintain an exceptional student experience, exceptional student outcomes. And I need to continuously increase the value of our programs for students and hiring partners. So I define, plan, execute, on the improvements to the entire learner and educator experience within the edu- engineering products. And I own those key su- success metrics around enrollments, graduation rate, hired rate, mastery, student engagement and satisfaction. It's my understanding that Thinkful has some unique ways of handling like tuition. Yeah, we have a tuition refund guarantee, which is great for those students if they do not get placed within six months after graduating from the curriculum. If they're ambitious, if they take the steps that they need to take, then we will guarantee a refund of the tuition if they do not, if they do not land a job. In some ways, I think we're transforming education in that we're providing, so we're providing a a job outcome guarantee and we're providing these income share agreement opportunities that you don't get, say, in a traditional four year college where you can delay actually paying for your tuition until you get a, until you get a job. We're also just recently, we launched an income share agreement with a living stipend, which allows students to quit their jobs, defer payment, and receive a a stipend while they're going through the program. So is it safe to say that there seems to be a huge need in the market for more software developers and more data scientists right now that that a school would rethink itself and how that, that structure works when it comes to tuition? Oh, absolutely. The workforce market, if you look at any of the research that, that talks about any workforce readiness market information says there is going to be a huge gap in technical skilled resources, not just technically skilled, but also, you know, having these, the emotional learning and the growth mindset. Lifelong learning is going to be of critical importance 
And this concept of going to a four-year school and you're done learning, that that's going to be a thing of the past. And developers see this every day. They can't just think about what they learned five years ago and, and continue to apply that. They have to be constant learners. I think that boot camps will be changing that in that it's more bite-sized type of learning with guaranteed outcomes. So I know circle back, thinking back to your past role when you were working, you were part of the technical team. Within that, like how did your team define and talk about technical debt within your software development process? So what I found is that more mature developers really understand technical debt. They know that it's part of the process. Over-engineered solutions, just like over-featured solutions, take too long to get to market. They recognize that. Maybe it's part of you know having this trust within the team that they know that I'm representing the business and I trust that they're representing the technology. But when you're seasoned, I feel like you've likely worked on a product that took this path of being over-engineered, over-featured, and only to find that there isn't product market fit. And that's a really expensive problem to be in. And nobody wants to be in that, whether you're the product manager or the developer on that. So I think more and more new developers are also learning that tech debt really comes with the territory of development. So to me, I think the big challenge is making sure that there's a process in place to pay down that debt and not just the interest, but where appropriate, the principal as well. So we as product managers need to do, bake that into the work that the team is asked to do. And when prioritizing and providing estimates, we need to consider that. The best way to handle tech debt is to tie it to measurable user impact and to think about leaving code better than, than you found it. How did your team organize that work? Were those individual tickets somewhere? Were there wasn't a, just a big bullet list and some document somewhere? How did your team kind of compile that, prioritize that, and merge that with the product need from a customer perspective? I think there's a, a common misperception that product managers don't care about tech debt, and we don't care about our team when they bring it to our attention. We do. We care. We really care deeply about it, not just because of what it means for how long it will take for the future of us getting something to market, but also because because it's part of being on a team is to build that trust and to say, I hear you. I know that I know that you that you delayed on doing this because we wanted to get this thing out there fast. So I kind of touched on this before, but you know, for me it's about building that trust. So I want to make sure the team knows that I know rapid innovation will incur debt. I trust the team to build the solution the right way. I trust that if they say we didn't do something intentionally, then that means I need to make sure to leave space for that to happen in the future. So I don't dictate the way to build something, but I will go to bat to make sure that we have capacity built into every sprint that allows for room to, to fix bugs, to refactor, to optimize certain areas. And that's just a regular cadence that I make sure to address it. Back to one of the questions that we've, we've talked about before is, is the big rewrite ever recommended? No, because you want to bake these opportunities in to go and refactor and optimize. But don't plan on, you know, one thing that I don't want to hear is we need to rebuild the entire thing. I want to hear we need to build this piece because it's getting high usage and there it's, it's no longer performant. Or I want to optimize this because it's the biggest hit to our system resources. That's what I want to hear. And I want to hear a developer explain that to me so that we can, it, it makes sense for us to build it back in. But I just think it's part, you know, part of the workflow is to address tech debt. I want every team to know that I work with to know I trust them to tell me when, when it's the right time for us to be looking at things. And I trust them to refactor where appropriate. I'll be back with my interview with Mariah in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. 
I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations remotely valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Go on, I'll wait. Also, should you be the type of person who has a plethora of great stories about improving the long-term maintainability of software and might like to share that with our audience, please get in touch with me at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now back to our interview with Mariah Howard. In your experience when you've been working with developers, have you seen developers transform over a period of time from maybe starting off at this is a pain point for me to work with? At some point in the future, they're now raising issues of technical debt or something, and they're able to frame that in a way that's more business-centric, thinking about the what's the upside here of tackling this versus it being more of like, what's the negative impact this is having on me as, as a developer? I think I've seen that in this shift of the teamwork shift, this kind of attitude of it's not the business against the development group. It's not the... I think it's that's that's more about collaboration and communication. The more that I can share my magic with the market needs and the more that the developers can share the way that they're seeing technical debt incurred within the the code, I think that that's really what's kind of helped shape this more maturity of it. I think there are other things that help have helped shape it too. I mean, continuous deployment definitely helps us um have smaller pieces of code that we're always releasing. You know, microservices and componentized uh, ways of of development have helped us help, helped us move away from this a bit. I think I definitely have seen a shift in the way the development team looks at technical debt, and they understand if we're going to wait to address everything, we're 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 too late. What do you think is one of the most misunderstood aspects of your role as a product manager by developers? It's funny. I think product managers care about technical debt. We want to address it. It impacts our products. I think it comes as a surprise that we actually do care. You know, for me, one of the things that I found the biggest surprise when I te- when I care about technical debt is that often it's the developer that pushes back on addressing it because they don't want to work on old code and refactor. They prefer to throw it away and use the new latest technologies to build something. There may even be a an attitude that if you want to go work on old code bases, you're less ambitious than other developers. And I don't think that's the case. I've worked with plenty of mature developers who understand it's about getting something done and out there and leaving it better than you left it, but not necessarily spending all the time to build the next new fancy thing. Also, I think another surprise was that while product and teams often look for delivering small, valuable parts of the solution, often when you talk about tech debt, it becomes hard for developers to see ways to break it down into small, small, valuable chunks. Though while we as product, we always are being asked, how can you break this down? What is minimum viable? So I think that's something for developers to keep in mind too, is when you're talking about technical debt, think about how you can break it down into these small, small pieces that deliver value. Coming full circle here, let's imagine there's a few developers listening to this podcast. They've been at their company for a few years now, and they don't feel like their concerns about the long-term maintainability of the code base has been heard by their product managers or from upper management, or maybe they don't even have the luxury of having an awesome product manager like yourself. So perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate refactoring areas of the code base, improving the test suite, upgrading the framework that they're using, but I've heard not right now, maybe a few too many times and feel like 
it's no longer worth asking about. What advice might you offer them on how to take some action today? Well, I'd feel unfortunate if they don't have a great product manager who will support them because a product manager will, will, would love to help tell that story if they could tie it back to user value and business value. If it's not tied to that, I don't know that there is a case for it. Finding that case, thinking about the user, you know, taking that human centered approach to it is going to be the right way to have anybody look at you and say, that makes sense that we need to address that. So if there are security issues, tie it back to what could happen to, in my case, to a student if their information is breached. You know, there, there are real issues there. And if we could tie it back to that, I think it's easier to tell that story. We don't sell technology, we sell solutions. So that's, you know, another reason to make sure that it's focused on that. So make sure that the leaders in the business understand how it will impact those two things, user value and business value. And that should help in articulating your point. Two final quick questions for you. What book do you find yourself recommending to software engineers most often? My go-tos are the Design Thinking Playbook. It's got lots of techniques to set a bias towards action and prototyping and converging on ideas, experimentation. Another is Donald Reinertsen's Product Development Flow, which is kind of an older book now, but it's and it's definitely not an easy read, but it provides a lot of insight into the principles of how we should be building product. So reducing batch sizes, decentralizing decision-making, managing cues of work, accelerating feedback, you know, thinking about variability. Those things are all covered in his book and it's phenomenal. So I, while it's old, it's, it's definitely, it provides tons of insight into those principles. That's great. And where can people learn more about you online? Online, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Search for Mariah Howard, an author, and you'll see some of my thought leadership around digital literacy and the importance of it for all learners, all ages, and future workforce readiness. And I'm pretty active in the Portland women in tech community. So you can always find me at some meetups here in Portland. I'd love to chat if you'd like to chat. With that, it's been such a joy speaking with you today, Mariah. Thanks for joining us on Maintainable. Thank you. Take care. Oh, oh, oh.